Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Welcome back, Nana. Welcome back. Thanks, it's been a chaotic last few weeks, hasn't it? No, but you know things are calming down. Well, again. so yeah, I know the work works still. Some people are obviously prodding people out there in workplace land, aren't they? Do some silly and dumb things because we've got a flow of it at the moment. Yeah, and I think you'll see from the case today that people can do very silly things indeed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's winter. Do you know that at the end, end of as you start going from August into September, October. People just get tired and stupid and they keep doing tired and stupid things. Some of these things are just not tired, just stupid. (laughs) But what we are going to see over the next three or four months or probably six months is an abundance of misconduct cases of irritability, anger, winter-based Melbourne Victorian behaviour. This is all of Australia. I know, I know. We we infect everybody. (laughs) Why don't we kick off? Because I I reckon that Noonan is a pretty funny case. Noonan's a case where an employer, a director in a business, said some outrageous words. Yeah. Words we would never say. Even Kim would would not use those words. And, like, referred to people in those terms instead of by their name. Yeah, so there's C words and things like Mm. that. And, and racist comments and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, so and this person that did too went back to their office, left the office, went back and said, look, please don't speak to me like that, deal with me respectfully. And then the day lady had an equally outrageous conversation over the phone, you're effing kidding, aren't you? Yeah. And then sacked him, for not, and sacked him for not being a proper fit. So he brought a general protections claim, what's the workplace right? He's raised his own safety. Yeah. And he won. And made a complaint as yeah, well. Yeah, he won and he got 93 grand. It's crazy. That's all because somebody repeatedly was disrespectful and rude to someone and you wonder how someone could be that dumb, don't you? Yeah, and in this case there were performance issues, so they were found to be part of the reason, but the fact that there was any kind of workplace rights being considered, which clearly was the case in this case, meant that it overrode everything else. It's interesting. I did some training at a large international business a few years back where we talked about the use of vernacular, the way we just, you know, someone's buddy, someone's mate. And kept, and during the training I kept saying to people, do you have any understanding of who the people are? Do you work for them? Do you know their cultural values? Do you know their religious values? Do you understand as you start to use language like g'day love, what that could mean to a person It could actually offend them and they do have a name? So why would you choose something which was something that you felt at ease using without understanding the impact? And I got some really odd responses which one person said, well, I call everyone love. And I said, well, maybe you offend everyone. Maybe you only offend one. But when you know their name, why would you call them? Yeah. So this is an extraordinary example of bad name calling, okay, mm. and I, it's so obnoxious that they're always going to get a huge whack in general damages as part of whatever that general protection is. Yeah, probably they didn't settle. It's yeah. just crazy. But I want to use, I guess, as an example to go out and say, look, there's a whole lot of things that people feel familiar about. They feel comfortable. And, that, and because they grew up, like I grew up in Ballarat where everyone was called love. I moved down to Tasmania and someone called me cock because they call men cock and women duck. And I nearly, I nearly dropped the guy I did it. I thought, you don't call me cock. What you? I had no idea, but it's still the old East London oh vernacular gosh. because of Tasmania being settled and being insular. Use that language to describe people. And actually I was a bit offended, so I couldn't understand anyone who called me it. But that just shows you there, you know, when I said, what are you saying, mate? He goes, and then he, he clicked, he goes, oh, no, sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. I went, 
Yeah, okay, getting there. But my point yeah. about it is you're often comfortable with the way you describe or talk towards somebody, understand it's a bit like unconscious bias. Yeah. You don't understand how that impacts others, so please use people's names. And I think that's what the argument the guy ran is. It was just joking. It was banter. But it doesn't matter what your intention is. It actually depends on who's receiving it. Mm. So just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, just don't do it. Look, Argentina and City Perfume. It's such a common thing that happens all the time. So yeah. I think it's, it's a very relevant case. Yeah, this case is sort of interesting because person applied for a job, they went through all the things of filling out for super, for tax, doing yeah, all that. Yeah, signed the contract, the contract. were rostered for shifts. And then they were invited to attend mandatory training. And as part of that, the candidate said, well, I am being paid for it. And they said, no. They said you'd get a gift for attending. you get a gift for attending. <laughs> and then the employee said, well, I'm not coming unless I'm paid. And then they just said, well, goodbye. Yeah, withdrew the offer. Withdrew the offer. And, of course, it was an unfair dismissal. General protections. General protections, yeah. Sorry, it was not only an unfair, but it would have been unfair, but it's most definitely also general protections. Well, it couldn't be unfair because they hadn't worked there for six months. Why are you killing me today? <laughs> no, me. I got confused too. No, I no, no, like, no, no, but you're right. Unfair, yeah. yeah, no, you're right. There's general protections, which can prospective employees can make applications as well. But in this case, they said no, they were definitely an employee because the fact that they'd been rostered for shifts, signed the contract, done all the tax forms and everything, that was evidence that an employment relationship had commenced. Yeah. I think, because I can tell I didn't read the rest of the case, <laughs> what really interested me was about this idea of providing mandatory training you don't pay for. Now, remember in the Fair Work oh, Ombudsman. So yeah, well, one of the early Fair Work Ombudsman case where an HR director was found personally liable and got a fine was a case called the Fair Work Ombudsman Centennial where an HR manager was complicit in characterised people as contractors when they were employees mm. and despite saying to the manager, you know that's not right, and the manager said, well, that's what I want, went ahead and executed on it. And not only that, as part of that was training which people weren't paid for. And the court expressed its dismay that you think that you can actually require someone to credential themselves for work and not pay for it. And that was sort of the language that was used. So the reason I was interested in this case was, I should have read it properly, the reason I was really interested in it is this idea that you can say to someone, well, come and work for us, but you've got to do this first. Can I say to you, the moment they've got to do it, yeah. it's work. It's different if it was an optional thing, like if you want to further it yourself, but then it's still kind of a grey line. So yeah, it's a grey Please be careful, and particularly if you're covered under the wards, they're very strict and it would be a breach. All right. Next case is Bentham and John Rutler and Angler Gold. Yeah, it's a mining company. Can, can I? I'll have a go at the facts because I did, I did read this case. <laughs> okay. so, unlike the last one where I read the, the headings, <laughs> this is a woman who had allergies. Severe, severe allergies. allergies yeah. Gained an undertaking from the company in respect of allergies that it would be safe to work. She um, like was on site. She lived on site and they yeah. had to eat all the meals on That's site, right. yeah. Then one day she ate a piece of cake which she understood was safe to eat, which had icing and went into anaphylaxis. Um, when she came back to Perth, distressed by physically unwell and distressed by what occurred, she tended her resignation. After getting to see them, trying to explain it, two days later she sought to retract it. And they said, no, we've accepted. Now, you know, the general they only accepted at that point. So yeah. They didn't accept it before then. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, the case law normally says the 24 to 48-hour cooling-off period is essential. And in that case, if we had to use that measurement, 
the acceptance of the resignation would have stood for the fair work. But what fair work went on to say is, but look, the heat of the moment resignation, which is what these are called, arises where someone is making a cry for help. And her use of the resignation and the going to see them was to say, well, I'm distressed, I'm, I'm not well, I can't believe you did this, I want, it, I want it fixed. It wasn't really saying I want to be out of there. It's what she felt she had to do to bring home the issue. Yeah, so it was very clear that she was significantly distressed and that was impacting her decision-making. Like, I think in evidence she provided two medical certificates as well and her actions as a whole, when you looked at it, clearly made it very clear that she had no intention to actually follow through with the resignation because she's the one who approached them to see how they could do better and things like that. And so really the obligation would have been for them to inquire further instead of just going straight to accepting yeah. it. Hard, isn't it? Because if you think about any workplace, it's not unusual that once every couple of years someone become distressed about it. doesn't matter how good you are as an employer, is my point. We'll be distressed about something. They'll be a bit of an all-or-nothing personality, so they'll reach a stage of conflict where they'll go, well, I'm going, here's my resignation. Pretty hard to stop them in some ways at that stage. But the answer is it is commonly when someone lacks the skills of actually negotiating what the issue is, they develop this all-or-nothing behaviour. And for Nina and I, this was an interesting case because it sort of went outside the time period you'd normally see in what are called heat-of-the-moment cases, mm. but they're just not objective measures. They're just things that have arisen in case yeah. law over time. What this really shows is when you've got someone who's a bit of an all-or-nothing person, when suddenly they've resigned for no other reason than a particular issue that concerns them, at that stage you get the resignation. Sometimes you're dancing because you go, God, I thought we'd never get rid of them. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the obligation then is to inquire as to the purpose of it and to be satisfied that people are really resigning. They're not just crying and saying, I need help. So a good case because it's a great red flag case, I reckon. Yeah. Okay, not changing the law or doing anything, just a great red flag case. Why don't we have a look at the last case, which is Shotman. Oh, this one's very shocking. <laughs> well, because the facts aren't flashing this, I'll, I'll tell the facts in this <laughs> one. As part of the work, there was work, there was a place people would stay provided by work. Yeah, they were restaurant workers. Yeah, one man came home, affected by alcohol in the early hours of the morning, thought it would be a good idea to urinate on another who had narcolepsy and ended up with PTSD as a result of it. Yeah, he suffered like a massive medical episode. It's pretty bad. Yeah. I can't say I've ever been quite in that position, but it is an extraordinary action for being weed on, but it is what it is. Nonetheless, nonetheless, is the issue came out is the person who was urinated on brought a common law claim mm -hmm. and the common law alleged that the employer was negligent in providing an unsafe place for them to stay in. Yeah. And this is a fascinating case. It was vicariously Yeah, it was vicariously liable. Fascinating case because it doesn't sit comfortably with a whole lot of areas of law, which we'll talk about in a second. It went through a number of stages and the High Court ended up saying that there isn't a sufficient connection between the time, the place, what occurred and work for it to be connected to work. Yeah. Okay? So there was connections. It was provided by work. The accommodation was um, yeah, provided by work. Yeah, provided by work. But the time of it, the incident itself, they're not things where there was a supervisor present saying, no, don't you agree on that person. That wasn't part of it. Yeah, and he wasn't doing anything 
which was required as part of his role because they compared it to another case where someone was lighting a fire to cook something and it caused fire damage where that was incidental to their role. And we don't know how to say the name of that case, by the way, which is why we're not referring to Bougay, Bug, we just don't know, yeah. B-U-G-G-E, and both and of us are going very low-key on the name. But, like, <laughs> the act in this case clearly wasn't required or incidental to his job as a restaurant worker. So the High Court said it's clearly not relevant. So let's just take that one incident, let's expand that incident a little more and say it was a person who came in unrelated to work, drunk, sexually assaulted somebody. In the accommodation? In the accommodation. So for the purpose of safety law, is there any risk that exists? Well, it's accommodation provided as part of a workplace. It's likely safety law's jurisdiction would extend. Scary but true because if you have a look at all the cases, Port Hendland and up the the west of Western Australia, that is how they've dealt with people who are flying workers who work for five or six days at a place. So risk of safety, not high. Workers' compensation. So would the individual who suffered it say, I have a compensable claim? Yes, because I'm provided with this place for work. Definitely connected. Definitely connected to work. So, okay, so Rosen tells if we look at employment law and say, would the person who urinated be likely to lose their job? Absolutely under the Rosen tells because it goes directly to the relationship of employee and their ability to work with someone. So... The out of work conduct would have been considered work for the purpose of Rose yeah. and Telstra. It was definitely serious misconduct. Yeah. And so, and then, as I said, in discrimination law, yes, if, if it was sexual assault, if we use that as an example, there's absolutely no doubt that in discrimination law, the person who suffered the sexual assault would unquestionably have a good discrimination claim. So it just shows that the law is not easy when you provide services or access to people. And we've seen all the, when journey claims were cut out, but we've seen nurses and other people successfully bring claims when they pay, they've got, they go to a car park which is provided outside of working hours that's not lit and they're assaulted in a dark area. Mm. That work is liable for that, okay? That's sufficiently connected for common law too. But I'm just trying to show you that the law is not all at one on this issue of yeah. assets that are provided to people as part of work, though not in working hours. And what that means, Nina, is? That it all basically could be captured. But I think... So what do you do to get around? I guess when yeah. I came to you then, see, because you yeah. called me out before, I want to catch you out now, but what do you do, Nina? Well, I think, like <laughs> even, I think the important thing to remember is although it can be captured under all those other laws, like safety, discrimination, employment law, there are defences. So if you've done your risk assessments, you know, made sure it's safe, done everything possible in case of sexual harassment, have clear policies about not drinking too much alcohol, behaving appropriately, even in the accommodation. Obviously, you can't have someone there watching what everyone does. But if you've done everything reasonably practical... And instructed them. Yeah. So they're very clear that yeah. they know what is good. Yeah. Then even if it is captured, you're not going to be found liable because there's not much, nothing else you could have done, like yeah. essentially. Okay. So, look, fascinating case because it really does expand beyond its own borders, yeah. that case, doesn't it? We're going to move on to the major topic, which Nina may not be as prepared as me because I haven't told her. <laughs> but what I want to, want to talk to you about is when an employee redundant. It's very easy to know when an employee is redundant when I say to the workplace team there are four people working there and only three will work there tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just saying. If I do that and say, all right, and as a result of that, somebody's going to lose their job and I'm going to go through a skills matrix, I'm going to determine who I want to keep, Okay. Mm-hmm. 
unquestionably that triggers a redundancy. And that triggers a series of steps that do. So today we're going to split up into two conversations. One, how do redundancies arise? And secondly, then what you do. What's not so obvious is when we're looking at restructuring organisations and we start adding or subtracting from people's jobs and spreading that around. So I say to Nina, look, you're a senior associate. You previously supervised two staff. You're not going to do that anymore. I'm going to allocate the supervision to the new associate coming through and I want you to focus on marketing. Now, what have I done? I've actually substantially changed the nature of the role Nina's done. I haven't affected her remuneration. I haven't reflected Change my duties. But I've changed your duties. So I'm right on the edge of redundancy. But, of course, if what I'm doing is elevating Nina's role, she'll never complain about redundancy. But where I do something that takes away a benefit for her future, that is the trigger for redundancy. So if what I say is, look, Nina, we've in bringing in two other senior associates and I'm going to put above all of you special counsel so you won't be reporting to me anymore. And then he goes, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, the next step up you'd be would be senior uh, special counsel it wouldn't be principal i've just curtailed an advantage for nina in the future and i've just made the role she had her reporting significant part of it and the capacity for future remuneration i've just reduced it and people don't understand when you do that you are effectively diminishing the nature and scope of the role and you're triggering a redundancy same as when you have it going from part-time or full-time to casual. That's yeah. another one that people forget about, that it is, although you're like, oh, it's not really changed, the role still exists, you're changing a fundamental part of the role and could be disadvantaged then, so it could yeah. so anything that creates a disadvantage, whether it's implicit or actual, so casual is a great example. When you say to somebody, look, you'll actually earn more cash in your hands and we're going to pay you a casual rate. It's actually slightly higher rates to than you got before. I'm removing your capacity to gain personal leave, I'm removing security. security of job, I'm doing all those things. Even though I paid more, I've made your role redundant. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I just want to raise it's a day. Yeah. Like I think over the last four or five weeks, we've had a number of people come to us with reorganisations, restructures and discussions around things. And as they go to do those things, they are taking opportunities away from people, taking benefits. Yes, the person doesn't lose remuneration. REM stays the same, but the opportunity to get more does or the fact they become quarantined into a place they can't grow from. Yeah. The nature of the work they've had is takes away the things that allow growth within a business. We only want to talk about it shortly, but we want to focus on this issue which says, you know, be careful. Be careful when you're refashioning work that you're not taking opportunities or benefits away. Even if those benefits will not be realised immediately, that is a redundancy. And that sort of kicks into the second part of as I go to do a restructure, everybody simply thinks you just set it out, you do your skills matrix to determine who's in and who's out, and then you tell people when you get on with life. And it misses two major parts. One is safety law says when we change the manner in which we work, there is an obligation to consult prior to a definite decision being made. Mm-hmm. So any restructure is the same as changing plant in manufacturing business. It requires analysis of what it would look like and a discussion around safety. Do the unions or the safety regulators understand that? No, they don't. And that's a really lucky thing. Can I just say, and for the unions out there, close your ears. But it is most definitely a consultation. And can I say, when we're doing restructures, we always insert that because what we find is we have much less risk going forward when we do that correctly 
and we don't have the level of industrialisation disputes that occur next. The next part is deciding when you are going to make the decision. Remember, you're creating all the paperwork, you're doing all the things that go with it. You'd want to have some of that under privilege, wouldn't you? As you're focusing on what you want to do, if you decide to notify well after you've made that, you're in breach already. Yeah, because it's supposed to be as soon as reasonably practical. Yeah, after a definite decision has been made. So it's important to focus on that and then the consultation obligation arises when the definite decision has been made to mitigate or revert the impact upon employees. Different thing. Not to stop what you're doing. No, Remember, and that's what the union have to say, well, this is a chance to revisit the restructure. It's not. It is to minimise the impact on people. So it is, mm-hmm. at that stage, a two-place consultation, one town hall meeting saying this is the definite decision, followed by individual meetings afterwards to look at how to avert the impact. Yeah, and it has to be genuine consultation. You can't just go through the motions because that's often where redundancies fall apart in the commission. Yeah, and the last part is you need to document each stage yes, so that it expressly states what you're doing and why you're doing because after those first two meetings, you've then got to go back to the third meeting, which is to tell people and then comply with the Fair Work Act around procedural fairness, yeah. which includes disclosing at that stage the nature of assessment on the skills matrix. Mm-hmm. So I just thought we'd map it out. People forget the different steps along the way. They forget the dual consultation obligations and they forget you can industrialise it really quickly and it can go terribly wrong. And remember, be careful when you're doing skills metrics that you don't overly evolve them to suit your purposes because yeah. when they're tested... That's um, the objective. Yeah. So, look, we did that and then we're going to jump into the problem because the problem jumps into that particular issue. Is, yeah. yeah. Angus was one of four leading hands who worked for Tin Drum, a plastic and aluminium packing business at the Coburg site. He was a HSR taking on the role as he's also the union delegate at Coburg and no one else wanted it. You always make your things in Coburg. He had only worked at the site for five years, had a poor attendance record, some behavioural issues and lacked some of the graphics training compared to other leading hands who all had lithograph skills. It's a very important skill in graphics. Oh, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're the aristocrats of labour, honestly. Highest paid people in any award. He caused some <laughs> real problems around the site using safety as an industrial lever. The Coburg site did high volume food and drink container processing, including printing. It was mostly automated, but occasionally on the older lines, higher skills were needed. But it was not common. Tin Drum was losing market share from overseas imports since logistics routes had opened up following COVID. It caused a drop in about 20% production and they had diversified into packaging dog food, not just familiar lines of beer and fruit. They had purchased a high-volume, fully automated line and had started commissioning. The result was the need for a 30% reduction in headcount. And on the 1st of July 2023, the executive of Tin Drum met to settle the redundancy process. They were advised by lawyers about the need to call for volunteers first, then proceed to force redundancies as required. During the meeting, a hit list was prepared of those who they wanted out. It included some employees who were not fit for work on workers' compensation for more than a year, Angus and some others who were problematic. On the 20th of July, 2023, the AMW heard rumours and knew the machinery was being commissioned. They put it in a dispute with the Fair Work Commission, no no status quo clause, and two days later, Tim Drum said it made a definite decision put out expressions of interest for voluntary redundancy and did town hall meetings. The Fair Commission was asked to urgently bring on this dispute. 
following day, that AMW and Tin Drum appeared in the Fair Work Commission. Tin Drum explained a definite decision had only been made yesterday. The AMW said that was inconceivable given the quantity and detail of work, which included reference to a skills matrix for every position. Fair Work Commission adjourned for a week to allow the process to run as there was no obvious advice had occurred and accepted Tin Drum's evidence that a definite decision was only made the day before. When expressions of interest closed four days later, two leading hands had volunteered to take a redundancy. There was only one role open for redundancy. Tin Drum met them individually, explained using the skills matrix why they rejected the expression of interest and proceeded to move to forced redundancy. So can I just explain, you can, during voluntary redundancy, somebody puts in an expression of interest and say, no, look, we actually do need to keep your skills and capabilities. Oh. Yeah, so that's why that's in there. That's right. a legitimate thing to do. Okay. As part of the consultation about forced redundancies, mm. They met with Angus and explained how his skills matrix was lower than all other supervisors and inquired why they shouldn't terminate his employment by way of redundancy. The AMW made an urgent application to the federal court to stop his termination, alleging breach of the award and sought limited discovery of all documents, including all emails, texts and messages of the executive involving a consideration of the restructure. All right, I think it's on the question. Yeah, no, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've been to all of these several times, so it is a very familiar structure that I just went through. And it's very often a a delegate who's been terminated that triggers fight in the commission. So the first question, are there safety law risks for Tim Drum? And the answer is, yeah, there's absolutely no consultation as to the process that was evolving. Yeah, there was really no consultation at all. So there is a consultation argument we could sit there. Is there any other risks? Well, I've got to tell you there's a massive safety risk, and that is the discrimination argument that could be run under safety law in respect of an oh, HS- HSR, HSR right. and because he'd been raising safety concerns. So, But wasn't he raising, like, non-legitimate ones? Well, no, but that's not his argument. Remember, in the sense of general protection, because it's like a general protection, it's a reverse onus, yeah. it's under the safety law. It is in his role as raising safety issues, not whether they're legitimate or not. But it has to be that they've taken the action because he's raised it. It does, but he would be saying, I've raised these on six occasions, I've been treated this way, and the mm-hmm. first opportunity to make me redundant, you've done it without a proper basis. It actually is pretty compelling. And it's not that much different than the Patrick Stevedore's case, which mm-hmm. was around risk assessments undertaken by a safety professional yeah. is ultimately terminated. So I put that in there because of the discrimination provisions in the safety law more than anything because everyone forgets it, as I did with the workers' compensation. <laughs> so terminating someone after a year who's not fit for the inherent requirements, not fit in the foreseeable future with reasonable adjustments, is legitimate, okay? Yeah. But using a guise to, to sack someone by way of redundancy, hey, it's done because premium keeps running, so it doesn't stop premium but it clearly breaches the same types of discrimination yeah. provisions that exist under WISC. And there's no defence as well. It's not reasonable management Yeah, action. so not at all. So can I just show you, I, I put those there because I wanted to flush out things mm-hmm. that people don't talk about. Under the safety ones, there's been five or six cases. Patrick Stevedores was under an $80,000 Supreme Court trial, you know, fine Supreme Court trial. It's good learning there. Is there any discrimination in general protection that's risk for Tendra? Yeah, the industrial one as well because he was a union delegate and they were targeting him because of that and um, the complaints. And the safety raised. concerns yeah. and, you know, there's other ones for Tim Drum in relation to workers' compensation and, you know, workplace rights, mm-hmm. all those all those types of issues. They're targeting people they don't like. Yeah. If there's any issue which oh, yeah. can go to that is a workplace right, they're going to be successful. Yeah. Very hard to get around union delegate HSR general protections. 
they would struggle to get around that. Yeah, particularly because they had people who offered to be made redundant and they were like, no, yeah. now we're going to be forced. And so the argument's and got to, consult. Yeah, the argument's really got to be that that lithograph expertise was one that was utilised at a much higher level than just once in a year type thing to say that that was the blocker. No, no, we needed them because of these skills. Yeah. You need to be able to demonstrate they are regularly practised skills. Mm-hmm. I just So that's what are the industrial risks and the criminal risks for Tim Drum for members of the executive? So industrial risks, they've not complied with any of the consultation obligations. Oh, there's fines, significant yeah. fines under the Fair Work Act, breach of awards, breach of those sort of things. Mm. So they're very – but is there any criminal risk that exists? Yeah, that's – I don't think so. What, don't? what is it? Well, criminal the criminal risks. risks are not easy to find. I think I thought of them at the time and I can't think of them now. But we'll come back to the physical risk. What did they do? So they terminated a whole group of people. I don't think it's a criminal risk. Like yeah. it's not, there's no wage theft or anything like that. No. So I don't think there's a criminal risk. So there you go. Well, that was a real risk. Yeah, that was a red herring. That's one that's, this is what happens when you do stuff at two in the morning. No criminal risk. Anyway, so there you go. We've exhausted all risk. Yeah. And we've also <laughs> exhausted. Even ones that did And we've also exhausted 30 minutes. Yeah. So that means we're going to say goodbye and Thank give us you. a thumbs up and lovely to be back. See you Bye. later. Bye-bye.